Okay, let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. We are once again in John chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, if you're new to the faith, if you're visiting church, don't really know much about reading the Bible, uh, once you get to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book there, the big numbers on the page, those are the chapter numbers, okay? And then the verses, those are the tiny numbers in between the words. So we're going to be in John chapter 5 this morning, so that's the big five, and we're going to be starting in verse 19, that's the little number. Let's begin this morning's sermon by reading the Word of God together. I'll read, you'll follow along, starting in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son And shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him. So that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life. So also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son. Just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, your word is so pure, and we are so not. Your word is so full of truth, it is truth, and we live in this world of corruption, in these bodies of flesh. God, we need your help this morning. Our only hope this morning is that you have promised in the gospel that you will reveal the light and life of your word to those whom you have called by your name. So we pray that you would do that by the power of your spirit, for the glory of your name, and for the good of your church. Amen. Okay, now, When I opened up this week's text and started reading and preparing to write my sermon, my first thought was, oh no. This is tricky. This is one of those parts of the Bible where the doctrine is difficult to discern. It's thorny. There are a lot of questions. There's a lot of stuff to disentangle. Well, good news. I'm here to help walk you through that, okay? We're going to disentangle this together. And uh, in order to make sense of Jesus' words this morning... And maybe you read this text and you understood them perfectly. Congratulations if that's you. Just first try, boom, you got it. But for the rest of us, uh, we need to remember one of the main rules of understanding Scripture is that you have to interpret a text in its context. So in order to make sense of Jesus' words this morning, it is absolutely crucial that we remember the context. Oh, it's so hard being a baby. We study the words in the context. Therefore, the most important words in this morning's text come right at the beginning in verse 19. Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them. Well, who is the them that Jesus is talking to? 
Well, you remember from last week, it's the Jews. Let's review what we studied last week because this week's text is flowing right out of last week's text. We stopped last week just because it's hard to cover that much information in one sermon. We had to pause somewhere, but we're picking back up this week where we left off last week. So what happened last week? Well, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And the Jews, because he did that, accused him of being a Sabbath breaker. They said he broke God's law. Jesus responded to them not by getting into a scripture debate, by but by saying, hey, God is my father, and I just do what he does, therefore uh, I win, okay? And the Jews recognized that in Jesus saying this, that he was claiming to be God, and therefore they wanted to kill him because they didn't believe that he was God. They thought he was being blasphemous. Now, we don't really know how this drama unfolded, right? How the Jews connived against Jesus, whether... There was a big argument in public with, with yelling and screaming accusations. You know, did a crowd begin to gather around the Jews and Jesus? Were they in the middle of the temple courtyard? Had they moved back onto the colonnades? We don't know. And if we needed to know, God would have told us. Regardless of how it all went down logistically, what we see here is that Jesus responds to the hostile Jews with the words found in this morning's text. But before we dive into the text, I want us to try to wrap our minds around the big idea of these verses. What's the sort of one main central theme? What's the main point that Jesus is trying to communicate to these Jews and also that he's trying to communicate to you this morning? Here it is. I'm going to try to help you see the forest and then we're going to go back through and and examine the trees, okay? Here it is. Jesus is saying to the Jews, if you marvel at what you have seen and heard today, that is, if you're upset about me healing this man, and if you hate me because of what I have revealed to you about myself, then you are going to be absolutely blown away by what you see on the final day when I come in the fullness of my glory. If you are angry about what you see in here today, if you cannot believe what you see in here today, you're going to be blown away on the last day. That's Jesus' main point this morning. So I've got three points to help us understand that this morning. So note takers, these are for you. Point number one, showing and seeing. Showing and seeing. Point number two, giving and taking. Giving and taking. And then point number three, marveling and honoring. Point number one, showing and seeing. Imagine with me for a moment uh, a father and son business, okay? Now, in this business, the father is obviously the owner of the business, and he is, let's just say he's a master craftsman of some sort. The son serves the father in the business as an, an apprentice of sorts, The father loves the son. The son loves the father. That's why they're in this business together. And because the father and son love each other so much, the father wants nothing more than to be able to hand off the family business to the son. And the son wants nothing more than to honor his father by learning the business perfectly so that he can carry on his father's legacy. That's that's their desires. That's what they want to see happen. So, in order to do that, the father shows the son everything that he needs to know about his trade so that the son can do everything exactly right and bring honor to the family name. And the son watches the father carefully and imitates everything that the father shows him to a T so that his father can trust him and hand off the family affairs. Now, this illustration is not my illustration. This is actually the illustration that Jesus employs in this morning's text. I just filled it out a little bit for you. At the very beginning of this morning's text, Jesus tells these Jews that he is in an apprentice kind of relationship with God the Father. That's the metaphor that he employs in his response to the Jews. So look there at verse 19 again and see with that in mind if this makes sense. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. 
For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. So I hope you can see the, the, the imagery that Jesus is employing here. Now, in this metaphor, Jesus uses the language of showing and seeing, the language of apprenticeship, to teach us something about how God the Father reveals his will to God the Son. And he also is trying to show us how God the Son discerns the will of God the Father so that his actions are perfectly in line with the Father's will. Okay? Now, in telling this little mini parable, Jesus is saying to the Jews, hey, you guys are mad at me for what I'm doing and saying, but you should know that I'm just doing what my dad told me to do. And my dad never tells me to do anything wrong. Okay? That's the kind of distilled cookies on the bottom shelf reduction of what Jesus is saying here. I think that's pretty clear. It, it, th- that makes sense. We can really wrap our minds around that. But what can really trip people up when we come to these verses is when we consider this in light of the doctrine of the Trinity, okay? We know that Christians believe in the doctrine of, tr- of the Trinity, that God has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, but one in essence, okay? That is the doctrine of the Trinity. We have a, a hard time accepting that, that God is he's Father, and the Father is fully God, and God is Son, and the Son is fully God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and He's fully God. And yet it seems as if within the doctrine of the Trinity, within the Godhead, there is submission. So how can the Son be fully God in the same way that the Father is God, and yet be in submission to the Father? Submission and equality are concepts that don't mix in our minds. They're like oil and water. So to help us understand how these two truths fit together, let's just begin by reviewing the facts. Let's just, let's just make sure we understand those first two premises to be true. So the first thing that we know to be true is that the Son only does the will of the Father. Okay, we see that in this morning's text, right? That's what he's telling the Jews. Hey, I'm just doing what my dad tells me. But we see it all throughout the rest of the Gospels. We see it in the rest of the New Testament, but we don't need to go there. Let's just stay in the Gospel of John. Uh, consider the language of John 6. John 6, 38. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's the Father. Or John eight twenty nine, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You can even just go back to verse 19 in this morning's text and just see it with crystal clarity now that we understand what Jesus is saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. Right? So the Son doesn't do anything that's of his own will. He only does what is the Father's will. He can't even do anything that would be outside of the Father's will. It is an impossibility. Okay, so that's the one thing we know to be clear. God the Son wants to honor God the Father and carry out the family business perfectly. The second thing that we know to be true is that Jesus is completely equal with God the Father in every way. And we see that all throughout Scripture. But again, we don't really even have to leave the Gospel of John in order to see that. If you've just been like halfway paying attention every Sunday as we've walked through John from 1-1 all the way up to 5-19, You've seen over and over again how Jesus is proven to be God. Not a lesser God, not a mini-God, not a created God, but completely equal with God the Father. You can see that as the gospel is bookended in John chapter 1 verse 1 and John chapter 20 verse 28 where the divine essence of Jesus is revealed. You can see it in John chapter 8, verse 58, where Jesus calls himself by a title that can only belong to God. He says, I am. And the Jews understood exactly what Jesus meant when he put that title on himself because they picked up rocks to stone him when he said it. You can also see it in the way that Jesus claims divine rights, like in chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, my father. That's not something anybody can say unless you are truly the son of God. And then finally, 
in Jesus' divine abilities. Jesus is doing all kinds of things in John's gospel that only God can do. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in this morning's sermon. But that's the second thing we know to be true, that Jesus is God, fully God, completely equal with God the Father. Okay, so now let's get back to what's difficult about this, right? What's difficult about this is the idea that Jesus can be fully God in the same way that God the Father is God and yet be submissive to God the Father. In order to help us understand that, I want to employ, uh, I want to give you an analogy from God's good creation. It's not a direct analogy, but it is an analogy. Consider the role of men and women in God's good creation. We know that God created men and women to be his image bearers, right? Men don't image God more than women. Women do not image God more than men. We do so equally, right? What that means is that we have inherent value, dignity, and worth. Men have the same amount of inherent value, dignity, and worth as women, and vice versa. Nobody gets more of that than the other. And yet, God has so ordered the creation that in places like marriage, it is his will for the wife to submit to the husband in the home and for the husband to lead. Now, the way that he leads is by dying to himself. That's for another sermon. But the husband is called to lead, direct the will of the family in a particular direction, and the wife is called to respect and submit. Now, as the wife submits to her husband's leadership, she sacrifices none of her image-bearing status. She doesn't give up any of her full humanity. Her essence is not changed in any way. In submitting to her husband, the wife does not relinquish any value, any dignity, any worth, any personhood. Now, we have to be careful here. Uh, let Let me do a quick qualifier. I am not saying that God the Father is like the husband of the Godhead and that Jesus is like the wife of the Trinity. I'm not making a direct analogy between marriage and the Trinity. All I'm trying to do is help you understand how it can be possible to have two people in a relationship who are completely equal, yet one is submissive and the other one leads. I'm trying to do category creation. I'm trying to actually help you to see that if you already believe what the Bible says about men and women in the home, you already believe in equal yet submissive. The thing that's tripping you up is just you have a hard time seeing that with the Trinity, but you shouldn't. Remember, God created us in his image. So wouldn't it make sense in the way that men and women relate to each other in the home, there's a sense in which we reflect the relationship of the members of the Trinity? All right. Now, some of y'all are like, okay, I didn't know I was signing up for seminary class this morning, right? Listen, at the end of the day, we cannot fully comprehend the divine mysteries of the Trinity, okay? It's just, we cannot wrap our mind around all of it. And, and the good news is, is that God doesn't expect us to fully understand the intricacies of his existence in order to worship him in spirit and truth. You don't have to be a Trinitarian theologian to worship God faithfully as one of his children. All that God requires of us is that we believe in, that we trust what he has revealed about himself to us. And what God has revealed himself, what God has revealed about himself to us is that he exists in a father-son relationship, wherein the son submits and the father directs the will. Now, uh, we have to remember that the language of seeing and showing here, it's, it's metaphorical language, right? God is not literally up there doing things in heaven, right? Healing people, casting out demons, teaching the word. And Jesus isn't on earth and simultaneously looking on earth and looking up at heaven and looking on earth and looking up at heaven, and trying to, this is just metaphorical language that Jesus is employing to help us understand from something in our own experience about how he discerns the will of the Father, okay? Now, listen, none of this matters, friends. None of this matters. Even if you understood everything I just said perfectly, and you walk away from this knowing this much more about the doctrine of the Trinity, none of that matters if you don't obey the will of the Father. If you are not following Christ 
and looking at the Father in all things, trying to discern His will in all things, trying to obey Him and follow Him in all things. It would be so easy for you to walk away from the sermon feeling like, okay, I really got that. Man, that was tricky. That was hard. It was complicated. But that metaphor was really helpful. And Sean's illustration really did it for me. And now I think I understand, yeah, some aspect of the doctrine of the Trinity. And then you leave here this morning knowing more but doing less. Friends, consider the world that we live in. Nobody is obeying the will of God. God's creation obeys his will. The wind and the waves do exactly what God says they should do. The mountains with their treetops obey God's will perfectly. The sun and the moon and the celestial bodies in the sky, they rotate exactly according to God's divine, eternal decree. But this world looks at God and is clearly able to discern his will for their lives. And the world says, no, I will not obey. Brothers and sisters, we profess to belong to Jesus. We take his name as our name. We are little Christs. We are Christians. And yet so often we are characterized not by walking in line with the will of the Father, but but by being outside of his will. In such a way that people who are in the world can look at us and clearly see that we're hypocrites. They don't believe the Bible, and they don't even know that much of it but they know enough of it and they have a conscience that bears witness to them and they basically know what is good and right and true and they basically know what is wrong and evil and they don't care about that in their personal life but they care when you don't walk in line with the will of God and they can see it. I'm not telling you that you need to obey the will of God just so that the world will not think you're a hypocrite. But just know the world sees you when you are being a hypocrite. Friends, if we take Christ's name on us, we should try to imitate him in every way. And that means we should be forever trying to discern God's will for our lives. And when I say discern God's will for our lives, I don't mean should I go to this college or that college? Should I have chilies or, you know, B-dubs tonight for dinner? You know, should I date this girl with red hair or brown hair? That's not what I mean. I mean... How can I live in such a way that maximally glorifies God in light of what he has done for me in Christ? And that's not super hard to discern. God has given you all the tools that you need in order to do exactly what Jesus is doing. God has made you his son. He's brought you into the family business. He's given you all the tools you need to be a good apprentice and to learn the will of the Father. He's given you his word And if we will turn away from social media and YouTube for like five minutes and just read it, we'll find that God's will is not as opaque as we thought it was. He's given us the body of Christ to help us discern God's will for our lives. And if we will just dedicate the time that God has allotted for us to gathering with God's people, we will find a tremendous help in discerning his will for our lives. God has given us his Holy Spirit. God has given us the gift of prayer. God has given us good books and theology. God has given us parachurch ministries and organizations. Friends, God has done everything that he needs to do to help us be like Jesus in discerning his will for our lives. We just need to be good apprentices. We just need to actually pick up and use the tools that God has given us because we love the Father and we want to bring honor to the family name. Point number two, giving and taking. There are two things that Jesus says he does in this morning's text that, that are the carrying out of the Father's will. That's giving life and taking life. Both of those can be subsumed under the category of judgment, but just look at verses 27 and 28 with me for a moment. And he has given him, that is the father has given the son, authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And that is his authoritative judgment voice. And they will come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil 
to the resurrection of judgment. And that word judgment there is just synonymous with death, right? One resurrection is the resurrection to life. The other is the resurrection to judgment or to death, the taking of life. So we see here, friends, that it is the will of the Father to hand over all judgment on the last day, all the taking and giving of life to the Son. Now let's remember Jesus' illustration that he employs at the beginning of this text. Jesus says that he learns how to do this from the Father. So what that means is that he will execute this judgment to perfection because he learned from the one who has perfect discernment, right? At this, in the second half of verse 19, Jesus says it like this, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. There's no derivation. There's no like, you know... <laughs> Uh, Plato did it one way, but Aristotle, he changed it a little bit. You know, there's no like, yeah, I learned it from him and I learned a lot, but I'm going to take this thing and put my own spin on it. You know, it's not like my coach says I should dribble the ball like this, but because of my body type and my skill asset and because of my personality and disposition, I'm going to dribble the ball some other way. No, the son does it exactly as he sees the father doing it in rote fashion. Now look at verses 21 and 22. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Friends, because Jesus has learned the will of the Father to perfection, the Father completely entrusts all judgment to the son, right? It, it's like the, the father in the father-son business. He's been watching his son for 20 years learn how to, uh, I don't know, lathe the piece of wood or build the cabinet or put the brick on top of the other brick. I don't know stuff about things, right? <laughs> but it's like the, the, the son has been watching the father for 20 years and the father has been training the son for 20 years And and the father can trust that the son has learned it exactly right. And he can say, okay, it's yours. Take the trowel from my hand and use it and use it to perfection. Now look at verses 26 and 27. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And the Son of Man, of course, is the title of the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the one who is supposed to come and fix everything with his perfect judgment. Now, what I find so utterly fascinating about this morning's text is that even as Jesus is employing this metaphorical language, this language of apprenticeship, of a son learning from the Father, this language of submission, He's talking about all kinds of things, saying, I am going to do these things. And these are things that the rest of Scripture says that only God can do. If Jesus isn't God, he's saying that on the last day, he's going to do all kinds of stuff that would be blasphemous for him to do. So the two main things that we're going to focus on are, Jesus says that he can give and take life. That's what he's going to do on the last day. Give and take life. And the rest of scripture is explicitly clear that that is not something that anyone other than God can do. Listen to Deuteronomy 32, 39. The Lord says, See now that I myself am he. There is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring to life. All these other false gods, they say that they have the power to to give life and to take it away. I'm telling you, look me. Look at me. That's what he's saying. Look at me. They're lying. Only God can do that, and I am the one true God. In 1 Samuel 2.6, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. In 2 Kings, there is a request made of of the king of Israel that he finds to be outlandish. He's... He's like, how can you ask this of me? And listen to what he says. He says, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes, which is, 
you know, a bit melodramatic, right? But it's, it's the, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wrecked, I'm ruined by, by this request. And he says, am I God? This is the king, right? He can do all things. He's sovereign. He says, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? And the answer is no. Friends, there are certain things that God alone can do because he's the only one that can be trusted to do them exactly how they're supposed to be done. And the giving and taking of life is one of those things. You don't want to just hand that responsibility off, the responsibility over eternal souls to just anyone. And God says, I won't pass it off to anyone ever. It is my divine right and prerogative. It is my role and responsibility. And yet, in this morning's text, we see God giving that to Jesus. So God is either lying earlier in the Bible when he says these things, or Jesus is who he says he is. He truly is the Father's Son. He truly is God, capable of exercising the Father's will to perfection because he is one with the Father. Now, I have to make two clarifications before moving on from this point. The the first point of clarification has to do with the the reason why Jesus came to earth. So I wouldn't be surprised if in this room somebody is uh, thinking about John 12, 47 right now and having some questions. John 12, 47 says this, and this is Jesus. He says, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So maybe you're sitting there thinking, Well, Jesus says on the one hand that he didn't come to judge, but he's telling us very plainly in this morning's text that he is going to judge. So what's the deal? How do we make sense of that? Well, it's actually not that complicated. In John chapter 12, Jesus is saying, judgment is not the main reason why I came. That was not the main impetus for my coming. And we would tend to think that that would be the reason why he came because of everything that we've learned about how messed up this world is, right? Remember, in John's gospel, the world is a messed up place. It is lost, it is broken, it is dying, it is hopeless, it is dark, it is opposed to God. The world hates Jesus, it rejects the light. I mean, I I could just keep going and going and going because John just keeps going and going and going about how bad this world is. And you live in it, you get it, I don't have to sell you on this idea. You know, AIDS, apartheid, racism, child abuse, sex trafficking, cold sores, right? You know how messed up this world is. So wouldn't we naturally assume that when the Messiah comes, that he's going to come for the main purpose of judging it, you know, destroying it, kind of like the personification of the flood? But Jesus says, no, that's actually not the main reason I came. The main reason I came is is because I love you and I want to save you. But just because that's the main reason for Jesus' coming does not mean that it is the only reason that Jesus will come to earth. Guys, you know how it is. You have to-do lists. Sometimes you have to, if you live a little bit out in the country, when you have to go to town, you have one main reason for going to town. But while you're there, you take care of two two or three other things while you're out. I think that's kind of like what's happening with Jesus' mission and ministry. Maybe one simple way to think about it might be this. In Jesus' first coming, that's this that we're in right now, John 5, in his first coming, his main mission was salvation. In his second coming, his main mission will be to execute judgment. Now, the second point of clarification has to do with another verse that might lead to confusion, uh, and this is in Romans chapter 13. In Romans 13, Paul is talking about the power of the government, the authority that the state has. And he says, well, I'll read it to you. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he, and that's the state or rulers, governing authorities, the state does not bear the sword in vain. Now this sword is a picture of force. The sword is a metaphor for the ability to take life. And the state has the authority to do that. God gives the state that authority. And then Paul says, For he, the state, is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So it seems like God, in some sense, does appoint people other than himself to take life. 
which would seem to contradict what I said earlier about how God is the only one who can take life. Well, not necessarily. Another, it's not, it shouldn't be that complicated. You have to understand that there's a big difference, a world of difference between taking physical life, bodily life, and taking spiritual life. It is true that God has given the state to exercise authority, uh, to punish evil by doing harm to our physical bodies, even killing. The state has the responsibility of doing that. But the state cannot take our spiritual lives, our eternal lives. And Jesus, he contrasts the physical and the eternal, you know, the physical and the spiritual, the temporal and the eternal. A couple of times in his own ministry, he says things like this. For it is better that you lose one of your members, that's something from your body, than that your whole body go into hell, right? So physical, temporal, bodily suffering versus eternal, spiritual suffering. He says, but I will warn you whom you are to fear. Fear him who after he has killed, that is physically, has authority to cast into hell. So yes, Jesus has delegated some of his authority out to kings and rulers and people in high places to carry out a kind of earthly, physical judgment on our bodies. But the final judgment of our souls is something that belongs to God alone. And in this morning's text, we see that it belongs to Jesus. We also see that God alone can resurrect a life. The state may have the ability to take your life physically, but it can't even give you any, any sort of physical life, right? It can't raise you from the grave It can't even extend your life by an hour or a minute or a second. The state is utterly powerless to do these things. Only God can give us physical life and only God can give us spiritual life. And these are the things that will happen one day. God will give spiritual life to all those who have believed in him. And he will take spiritual life from all those who have rejected him. I hope that every person in this room understands that this judgment, this resurrection to eternal life or death is certain. In verse 28, Jesus says this. He says, the hour is coming. The time is coming. And I want you to know that Jesus does not make empty threats. You know, if you, if you don't get in here in three seconds, little Timmy, I'm gonna spank you And then it takes Timmy 10 seconds and you're just worn out. And you're like, I don't really want to spank him. (laughs) You don't spank him, you know. If 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 you're not on your best behavior, I'm going to turn this car around right now. Well, we're not going to Disneyland this summer. Yeah, empty threats, right? God doesn't break his promises. You say, hey, this Friday we're going to the movies, buddy. Okay, you ready? Me and you. Tell your wife, babe, tonight, date night. You get a phone call, an email, a flat tire. Chance, plans change. You, your word is broken. That doesn't happen with Jesus. When God says the hour is coming, you can set your watch to that. The hour is coming. And you need to know that on that day, there will be no miscarriage of justice. There will be no partial juries there will be no bribing of judges there will be no fear of mob violence if the verdict turns out to be wrong there will be no tainted evidence in God's courtroom the jurisprudence of Christ is exact and it is perfect because he has received it from the father who is exact and perfect Every decision made by the Son on that day regarding your soul and my soul and the soul of every person who has ever lived, every judgment that he makes will be met with a nod of approval from the Father. On that day, every single soul will be laid bare. From Genghis Khan to Janis Joplin, from Joseph Smith to Johnny Cash, You cannot think of a person who will not go through the same judgment that you will go through. Every king and ruler, every president, 
If you believe in conspiracy theories, you know, all of the people in the shadows who are pulling the strings and who have all the real money and power, even if that's 100% true, they will have to face Christ. The poor and the lowly, the broken and the destitute, the victims, the oppressed, you, me. Us. We will all at some point in the near future, nearer than you know, die. And when we die, to borrow a metaphor from the Apostle Paul, we will be asleep for a time. And then we will wake up to the sound of the voice of Christ. And that voice will pronounce a judgment over our souls. Look at verse 28. Do not marvel at this. That means don't have a hard time believing this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Friends, when you hear the voice of Christ, you will rise from the grave and you will meet Christ as your judge. And he will execute his perfect judgment. In last week's sermon, Jesus was accused by the Jews of blasphemy for giving life to this invalid, giving life to him as a picture of the the final day when he's going to give life to all those who have believed in his name. In this week's sermon, Jesus is looking his accusers in the face and he's saying, you're judging me today, but I need you to know that one day I'm going to judge you. Which leads us to point number three. Marveling and honoring. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Go ahead and just keep your finger there or take the little thing at the top of your Bible and just kind of put it in that page. We're going to be coming back to that in a minute, okay? But this verse tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of the divine nature of the Father. To distill that down into less heady language, it just means that if you see Jesus as he truly is, then you see the Father. And Jesus says so himself. Turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 9. Actually, starting in verse 8. And Philip said to him, Lord... Show us the Father, and it is enough for us, right? Like, just, just give us the tiniest glimpse of the Father. Just show us this much of God, and we'll believe, which is a lie. And then Jesus says this, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now go back to John chapter 10. Just flip a few pages over to John chapter 10. Look at verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Friends, Jesus is the perfect revelation of the Father. That word revelation, it just means to reveal. So to most of us, I think we would agree that God is in some sense obscure to us. He's not standing right here in front of us. We can't look at him and examine him with our physical eyes. We can't smell him. We can't touch him. We can't taste him. But in Jesus, God has revealed the Father. So if you want to know what God the Father is like, you just look at God the Son. And yet, as Jesus walked the earth, as he healed the sick, as he casted out demons, as he preached the gospel, he did so in such a way that his glory must have been 
concealed to some degree because if it wasn't concealed to some degree, then these Jews who are hating Jesus for claiming to be God wouldn't hate him. They would just be like, yeah, you claim to be God and we can see you. There you are, you're God, and so that's that. If they truly saw Jesus as he was, they would marvel and they would honor. In last week's text, the Jews marveled at the audacity of Jesus. They were just, right? Like, if you want to know, we're going to talk what it means to marvel in a moment, but like, just for right now, just like, you go, like, this is unbelievable, right? That's what the Jews did. Jesus says, hey, I'm just doing what my dad tells me to do. And they go, you can't do that. And so they gave him no honor. In this week's text, Jesus says, you're marveling at my claims, but the day is coming where you will marvel at my glory, when you see me exactly as I am. Now look at verse 20 again. Go back to John chapter 5. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son. Let me start that one over and put more emphasis where it belongs. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Marvel. So that you may marvel. Now, here's what marveling is. In the Gospels, we already talked about this a couple weeks ago, but we'll just review it. Marveling is something that happens when people are blown away, when they're incredulous, when they find something unbelievable, astonishing, It's what the disciples do when Jesus calms the wind and the waves. It's something that the crowds do when Jesus demonstrates authority over the scribes and the Pharisees. It's something that happens when all the people in Israel see miracles from Jesus that have never been seen before in all of Israel. They they marvel, their jaw drops, they're speechless. And Jesus says, yeah, you're marveling, but not in the right way. But one day you'll marvel in light of who I really am. And you see the same idea in verses 22 and 23. Look there. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Now, if you're, uh, if you're really locked in this morning, you might have seen that in verse 20, and in verses 22 and 23, the word marvel and the word honor are used synonymously marvel and honor are used synonymously that's one thing i want you to see if you if you draw in your bibles go ahead and like put a circle around those words and connect them because they mean the same thing but i want i want to draw your attention to something else in the text to three words in this morning's text and it's in verse 20 and in verse 23 in verse 20 it's the phrase so that So that, go back to verse 20 and circle that. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that, circle the so that, you may marvel. And then in verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. For whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Go in verse 23, right there at the beginning, that. Why does the Father hand all judgment to the Son? That or so that. What I want you to see by looking at these words is the idea that God the Father is doing all that he's doing through God the Son for a purpose. He has a plan. And the plan is so that the Son will be honored and marveled at. And what will cause everyone to marvel at and honor Jesus? It will be the way he executes the Father's judgment perfectly. Now, We've done a lot of digging so far, and this has been kind of a dense sermon. You guys are doing great. Hang in there. We've got a little bit more to go. We're not done with point three. Go back to verse 20 one more time. One more time. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Do you see the reason that is employed here? The reason why God the Father wants God the Son to be marveled at and honored? The reason is because he loves him. Have you ever stopped and asked why it is that God the Father loves God the Son? It seems kind of silly, right? Uh, 
And there's a sense in which it, it seems almost ridiculous to ask because this, this imagery that God uses to reveal himself, it just implies love, right? Fathers love their sons. That's just the way it works. But I think it's worth asking, why does the father love the son? One reason is this. Because the son is the exact imprint of his nature. Go back to Hebrews chapter 1, real quick. Hebrews chapter 1. If you, if you followed my instructions, you are prepared. You will be back there quickly. Speaking of Jesus, the text says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and that is God the Father, and the exact imprint of his nature. The Son is the radiance of the glory of, of the Father. In other words, when God the Father looks at God the Son, he sees himself. Now let's distinguish. When God the Father looks at God the Son, he does not see a near likeness of himself. Like what I see when I look at patience, you know? I just can't tell you how often people come up to me and go, man, patience. She looks and acts just like you, which is the highest compliment anyone could be paid, obviously, right? And I'm like, yeah, she is, she, you know, she's my child, right? But that's just a near likeness. When the father looks at the son, he does not even see an astonishingly similar likeness of himself. Like what Jackie sees when she looks at Deanna or what Deanna sees when they probably know each other. They're probably like, no, we don't look alike at all. But right? what, think about what you thought the first time you saw Jackie and Deanna together, right? You're like, oh, twins, we've never seen this before. That's not what God the Father sees when he looks at God the Son. Something that's nearly the same and almost entirely the same, but not quite the same. When God the Father looks at God the Son, Hebrews 1 tells us he sees the exact imprint of his nature. When God the Father looks at God the Son, it's like he's looking in a mirror. What he sees is the exact imprint representation of himself but with one massive difference and this is the reason why we have to be careful using metaphors to try to describe God because when I look in the mirror what I see is just a physical phenomenon it's just a reflection of myself it's not actually me there's not a person in there but when God the father looks at God the son he's looking at a person he is the literal radiance of the father's glory you can't see glory. It's kind of hard to see glory. But when you look at the Son, you see the glory of the Father. And you should know that God loves His own glory. Why does God the Father love God the Son? Because the Son is the representation of His glory, and God loves His glory. There's nothing in this universe, or if you believe in things outside of this universe, that God loves more than His own glory. What else could God love more than his own glory? Anything that God would love that is outside of himself would be less than himself. There is nothing in the universe that is as holy, as righteous, as just, as beautiful as God himself. So what else could he behold that would bring him as much joy? You know that feeling that you feel when you feel love? Right? Isn't that the best feeling in the world? What else could God look at that could cause him to feel that feeling in himself more than himself? Nothing. And when he beholds his son, he beholds himself. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, well, that sounds vain. Yeah, it does sound vain to you because if you were to behold your own glory and delight in it, you would be ridiculous. <laughs> there, there's nothing to delight in in our glory. Our glory that God gave us was to be his image bearer, but that's been ruined by sin, marred by sin. You know, our glory is like looking in a shattered mirror. We can make sense of it, but it's, it's the nose and the eyes aren't where they're supposed to be. It's wrong, it's distorted, it's broken. But God is God. God's glory is a perfect glory. 
It would be sinful for God to delight in anything less than himself. And even in places in the Bible where we see that God delights in us, he delights in us because he is restoring in us the image of himself through his son. That's not in my notes. I'm trying to stop. Help me. I could just go on. God radiates the image of his glory in the person of his son and then points all of creation to him on the day of judgment and says, honor him. Because he is the most honorable thing in the universe. Marvel at him. Let your jaw drop at what you behold because there is nothing else that you could behold that should leave you more speechless than my son. And here we have another instance of Jesus receiving that which should only belong to God. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not ever, under any circumstances, yield my glory to another. Try to imagine with me a scenario where God will yield his glory to someone else. Is it Jeff Bezos who will get it? You know, how many trips to, this, to space before they deserve the glory of God? Is it someone who finally cures AIDS or cancer? Is it someone who cares for all the orphans of the world? Is it the most learned doctor of theology? Is it the, the wisest counselor? Is it the prophet? Is it the king? Is it the priest? Is it the pastor? No. No fallen creature no unfallen creature will ever receive the glory that only rightly belongs to God. And yet, God says, you will glorify my son. Now you may be thinking, Sean, well maybe he's gonna receive a kind of lesser glory. You know, like an ambassador, when he's sent out by the king's court and goes to a foreign land, they receive that ambassador in glory. It's not the same glory as the king, but it's glory in light of the king who sent him. And so maybe that's the kind of glory that Jesus will receive on the last day, a sort of delegated glory, a second-rank glory that's still very glorious, but not the same kind of glory that God will get. Well, no, not exactly. Look at verse 23. All right, we know that God is doing this so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So the kind of glory that Jesus will receive on that day, the kind of honor that he receives, will be the honor of the Father. If you've been walking with us through the book of John so far, you've seen that John tends to use words in two different ways. So the word believe can actually refer to someone who doesn't believe. I know that sounds weird, but if you've been here, you understand what I mean. John can say these people believe, and yet they don't really believe. What he means is they're, they're, they're evidencing a superficial belief, a sort of intellectual assent. They claim to believe, but they don't really believe. The same thing is true in this morning's text of honoring and marveling. You may hear this word honor and think that every person who honors that Christ on the last day will believe. But that's not true. Just follow the logic of the text. We've seen that on the last day, everyone will be raised and everyone will marvel at Christ. And yet some people will go to hell. Some people will be resurrected to judgment, to spiritual death. Well, so if it's not necessarily belief, I mean, in one sense it'll be belief because you're seeing, but not like saving belief, not like loving belief, not like you belong to me and I belong to you belief, then what kind of honoring is it? Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2.
Go to verse 9. Speaking of Jesus, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, and that is the honorific name, the glorious name, that is above every other name. And this kind of language, by the way, is used in the Old Testament of Yahweh. So that... Why does he have this name? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, whether or not we believe in this life, we will honor in the next we will see Jesus one day high and lifted up, the name above every name, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the host of hosts, and we will all bow down at his name and confess that he is exactly who he said he was, that he is God. So before we close today, I just want to urge everyone in this room right now to prepare for that day My loving exhortation for you this morning is not for you to merely marvel at Jesus in an unbelieving way. I don't want you to leave here this morning impressed by Jesus in a way that can't actually save your soul. Do not marvel. Believe. So that one day you may marvel as you should. So that one day you will marvel as one who has been saved by Jesus. There are two futures available to you. Choose your own adventure. One is marveling at and honoring Jesus as one of his conquered foes. The other is marveling at and honor Jesus as his beloved child, rescued from sin, adopted into his family, saved by him. How is that possible? How can God bring us into his fold like that? How can he fold us into his glory? How can he receive us into his family? We're the disobedient son. Jesus is the perfect son. He said, Dad, I just want to learn your business and I want to learn it perfectly. And I'm going to sit here day after day and I'm going to learn your will and I'm going to execute your will to perfection. And we, we looked at our father who invited us into the riches of the family business and we... Well, you know what we did. We rejected that offer. We spurned his love. We're like the prodigal son. We essentially said, we don't care if you live or die. I'm going to go my own way. How can can the father receive us back into the family after we have treated him in this way? Well, it's because of what the obedient son did on our behalf. John chapter 5 tells us that that one day the son will execute judgment. But Isaiah 53 tells us that before the son executes judgment, judgment had to be executed on him for you and me. Isaiah 53 tells us that it was the will of the Father for Jesus to be crushed, to die for the world before he judged the world. In the Bible, we learn that Jesus is both lion and lamb. And long before he roars onto the scene to execute judgment, he meekly offers us mercy. Long before Jesus is fierce in his judgment, he is gentle in his loving sacrifice. Long before Jesus takes life, he gives his own life so that all who believe might live in him. So do you want to live? Do you want to escape the wrath to come? Do you want to be resurrected into the glory of Jesus Christ? If so, you probably want to know, okay, what do I need to do in order to do that? And that's the most beautiful thing of all. There's nothing you can do. Jesus already did it all. 
Everything that needed to be done in order for you to be received by the Son and escape the Father's wrath on the last day was accomplished by Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. The gospel says that the more you try to do, the more you just mess things up. You can't do it. You're the screw-up of the family. So just let the good son, the obedient son, the perfect son, the one and only son, the true and better son, let Jesus and his work be done for you. Just believe. Just receive. Look at verse 24. All the way back in John chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You may be thinking, well, Sean, that seems to say that it does, I do have to do something. I have to believe. Yeah, but... Remember, believe just means to trust. What God is saying is, I've done it all for you, now I just need you to trust me. Trust in what I have made available to you. And if you do, you will live with me and my son forever. Let's pray. Father God, we want nothing more than to be with you. And we thank you that because of what you've done if we have believed, we are with you. If there are any this morning, God, who are not with you and who are struggling to believe, pray that you would open their eyes, give them ears to hear, show them the glory of your son, Jesus, so that they might marvel at and honor him in love. Amen. Amen.